We'll be looking back at the passage that Marcelo read in Luke chapter 2, though maybe from a different angle. Christmas time is such a special time. It's a special time when we, we see oftentimes the church is filled during this time. And I don't have to tell you how special it is because it's universally special to us all. While for some it can be difficult because of loss and other things that take place throughout life, it's still a time for us to reflect upon the goodness of God towards us in sending His Son to be our Lord and Savior. And one of my favorite things about Christmas is actually the singing. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a secular Christmas song or we're singing a hymn, I enjoy that period of time. But I particularly appreciate the hymns because of how rich they are in doctrine. And while there are many Christian hymns that are Christmas hymns that have slight doctrinal errors, we were just talking about them this morning, for instance, uh, no crying the Lord made. Well, if he was truly human, he was certainly crying in the manger. Um, but we see, nonetheless, some of the richest treasures of our Christology are expressed through song during Christmas. In fact, some of our hymns are just simply repeating Scripture in poetic prose or reciting elements of our classic creeds of the great tradition. And so we sing them not only because they are beautiful and they are heartwarming and they remind us of the birth of our Savior, but there's actually a didactic purpose. That is, that they are to teach us something about our Savior and His birth. Over the last several years in Christendom, there have been many theological debates over the person and work of Christ particularly the nature of Christ's relationship to the Father in eternity. I'm not going to go through those tonight, but I've been following these conversations over the last several years, and one particular hymn struck a chord with me, and pun intended, and it led me to treasure it more than ever, and it's the, the hymn we just sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's so rich in the theology, and it's just simply singing Scripture. It was authored by Charles Wesley, the author of somewhere near 6,500 hymns. Let that sink in. John and Charles Wesley were titans of the Christian faith in the history of the Christian church. And while they had some doctrinal views that we would disagree with, they were used mightily of God during the Great Awakening. And Charles penned this particular hymn in 1738. And what's interesting about the year of 1738, that's just within one year of his conversion. One year within his conversion, and he penned the lyrics of Hark the Herald Angels. Sing And the theology is remarkable and, and shows that not only did he have a mature and profound sense of the scriptures and theology, what, what makes it so remarkable is he was a baby Christian. He based the hymn off of Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, where we see the angelic procession pronounce the birth of Christ. And particularly, it's verse 14 that he zeroes in on. 
Now, the version we have in our hymns has an alteration by a contemporary of Charles Wesley, and that was George Whitfield. It was risen with Vulcan wings, which was a German word, and Whitfield changed it to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and we're thankful for that. Sadly, today, the version we sing is missing a few stanzas that, contain, that were contained in the original. In fact, just, just go to Wikipedia and look up Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and you can see the different versions over the years, what's been removed and what we, what we sing today. It's one of the few songs that actually made it into the Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican Church. The first stanza announces the birth of Christ, our Savior, whereas the remaining stanzas that we just sang provide rich theology. And as one observer said, quote, it has this exultant poetry turns into prosaic theological teachings. In these modified stanzas, we are introduced to ancient explanations of the Garden of Eden story. Let me just pause in the middle of the quote. Did you think Garden of Eden when we just sang this song? Goes on to say of the preexistence of Jesus as deity, his descent from heaven to be incarnated as man, the curse pronounced upon the serpent, the cancellation of Adam's sin by Christ, the second birth which we may now experience, and the new life lived in union with Christ. End quote. Talk about rich theology set to music. While some of the themes that are mentioned are missing from what we sing today, nonetheless what we have is a remarkable source of instruction for our edification and meditation at Christmas time. And so this, this evening, I, I would like for us to consider the text of Luke as guided by Charles Wesley through this song. Because what we're going to see is he's going to make connections through the rest of Scripture and places we might not have thought about that are directly related to what we read here in Luke. So, if you will, this evening we're going to consider the Christmas story and Charles Wesley will be our guide. The first opening words, Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Now that first word hark is not a word we use often. It's antiquated. We do not use it, but it means to listen or to give ear. Listen or to give ear. And so what exactly are we supposed to be listening to? What exactly are we giving our ear to? Well, specifically, it's angels singing. The very angelic host that sang to the shepherds in the announcement of the birth of Christ, we are called now to tune our ears into what they were singing and what they were saying. We are, we are being summoned, if you will, to listen to their chorus. And what was this chorus? It starts off by saying, glory to the newborn king. And so as the angels gathered to praise the birth of Christ, they proclaimed his kingship. Now just pause for a second on that. This baby born in Bethlehem is king. This baby that is in a manger is a king. This kingship is all-encompassing of the entire universe. So to ascribe to him glory is fitting and what he deserves. Glory is simply the brightness, the splendor, it's the luster, it's to ascribe magnificence. And specifically, it is ascribing this to a helpless babe, yet the baby is a king. 
it's interesting when you reflect upon this is the baby is dependent upon the manger to hold him and keep him in place. The baby is dependent upon the swaddling cloths to keep him warm. Yet that manger and the swaddling cloths are maintained in their existence by this baby. Their preservation is dependent upon this newborn. God robed in flesh, coming into the world through natural means of birth. We are called to ascribe glory to this king. But notice how Wesley describes his kingdom and the nature of his kingdom. It says in the next stanza, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So this is not an ordinary king, but one of peace. As Isaiah said he would be the prince of peace. His kingdom is not won by wars. His kingdom is not won by political machinations nor tyrannical laws. But it's won by the proclamation of the good news that in this king, and here's the phrase, God and sinners are reconciled. He states a simple fact that sinners are in need of reconciliation with their Creator. That they stand in need of being reconciled. That means and presumes that there is no peace. But this king brings peace. And his peace came through violence. He suffered violence so we would not have to suffer the eternal wrath of God. What a contrarian thought. Peace. We see nothing but violence all around us. Whether it be violence in the streets that we we see on social media or the news, whether it's war or pictures of war and destruction over the last hundred years, peace seems to be a mythological dragon somewhere in a far-off land that doesn't really exist. But yet we're told here, this king brings peace as the prince of peace. And that in this king we have reconciliation. This evening, do you know that peace that surpasses all understanding? Do you have that settled knowledge of peace with the Father through the death and resurrection of his Son? Do you have the peace of knowing this king mediates on your behalf and loves to mediate on your behalf? And it's, we see here, It's not for all that reconciliation takes place. It's for those that have rested in the completed work of the Son. And Wesley here is capturing the thought that we see in the phrase in chapter 2, verse 14 of Luke, with the phrase that Luke records of these angels, with whom he is well pleased. Peace on earth for those with whom he is well pleased. So this is not for all. Not all are reconciled. This peace is offered to those with whom he is well pleased. Which brings the question, how can a holy God be pleased with sinners, with those that are in rebellion against him, those that are actively rejecting him and rebelling against him? Well, the answer comes by way of reconciliation. So this phrase in Luke within with whom he is well pleased 
indicates that not all receive this peace. Not all have received reconciliation. Not all can sing glory to God, the newborn king, as a form of worship. Though one day all will give glory to this king. Next, Wesley captures the universal nature of this peace. And by universal nature, I mean the message is for all people, for all nations, all tribes, all tongues. And here Wesley calls on all peoples to rejoice, much like the Psalms do, that command all nations to gather and worship God. And what Wesley writes is, Joyful, all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. That is to, the nations will actually join the angelic chorus in giving praise to the newborn king. He says this, with the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Now this, this flows out of the fact that the angels in Luke proclaim this simple word where we read, and on earth, peace. It just refers, earth just refers to the dwelling place of mankind. Israel is not designated alone as receiving this. But this is for earth, for all nations, for all people, on whom the Father is pleased. What news this is? What news to hear this? So certainly we can listen, the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king, and he is worthy of glory. For we all come from different nations. But this reconciliation is for us as well. He goes on to say, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the, the everlasting Lord. It's, it's almost as if Wesley is capturing the eternal praise that the Son will receive. And here, Wesley is, calls us to consider just who this king is, one that is worshipped and endured by the highest of created order. But he doesn't stop there. He describes the very nature of this child. He is, listen to the lyrics, everlasting Lord. He is the eternal God. He is without beginning and without end. And this picks up on the very mystery of the incarnation, before we read of him taking flesh, we read these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, speaking of the eternal preexistence of the Son. And then the mystery is discovered, and that Word that is eternal, that is everlasting Lord, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us as a baby. Christ is eternal God. He has always been. He is I am, the Alpha and the Omega, which leads us to the mystery of this angelic pronouncement. It says this, latent time, behold he come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Now, Wesley sings here of the mystery of the incarnation, the eternal God of the universe is brought to earth through the virgin womb of Mary. And just search the New Testament, how it ascribes that he is from the tribe of David, according to the flesh. He is of David. He is of the womb. He is of the stuff of Mary. 
And when Wesley says, late in time, behold him come, it's, he's not referring to the Messiah as being late, as if God missed a minute and then, oh, I forgot to send the son. That's not what he means. He's just simply demonstrating that the baby born is the long-awaited Messiah promised in Genesis 3.15. And if you were waiting for the son, you would be waiting thousands of years. Late he come. Think of the, the implications of just that phrase, late in time, behold he come. This hymn is actually teaching us how to read our Bibles. That when we read in the Old Testament, we should be seeing the unfolding progression of revelation of the coming Messiah that has not yet come. Wesley then moves to the essential truth of Jesus' person, one person with two distinct natures, truly God, truly man, in these words. And these are the words that, that have captured my attention. Veld in flesh the Godhead see, hell thy incarnate deity. And here's possibly the richest truth of the entire hymn. Let me say it again. Veld in flesh the Godhead see. Hell thy incarnate deity. But Wesley captures the truly incomprehensible truth of the incarnation and teaches us how to approach this king. The word hell, it refers to a greeting. So when we see that hell thy incarnate deity, it's saying to give a greeting. But, but we're taught how to greet this child. When we greet this child, we're to greet him not just as our Savior, but we're to greet him as he is, as God robed in flesh, the God-man. Just as the wise men, when they came to Bethlehem, we read that they fell down and worshipped him. This is what we're called to do, too. I don't know what passage Wesley had in mind when he wrote that line, but, but I think of Colossians 2.9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And when Paul wrote that to the church of Colossae, he wrote it because they were many there were saying, well, well, because Christ took on human flesh, he couldn't have truly been God because God can't have to do anything with material uh, things, and so he must not have actually come in the flesh. And Paul's correcting that misunderstanding and saying, no, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. Bodily. He wasn't a, a phantom. He wasn't part God. He wasn't part man. He is the God man. Truly God. Truly man. Two distinct natures in one person. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail thy incarnate deity. He goes on to interpret this by saying, pleased with us, in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. That's an incredible thought that Christ was pleased with us in flesh to dwell. No one's gone from so high to so low as Christ. But yet we see that he was pleased to do this. 
I think of Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The promised presence of God found in Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Hang on to that word, pleased. It pleased God to dwell with his people. And it's according to his good pleasure that he came. And we have to recognize that the entirety of our existence is according to his good pleasure. If you're in Christ this evening and are resting in Christ and you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, it's because he was pleased to call you. You were called according to his good pleasure. In fact, Ephesians says, he, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, that is according to his good pleasure. All of creation, all of our existence, all that is unfolding as God's eternal plan is according to his good pleasure. He was pleased to dwell with us. Hark, the herald's angels sing glory to the newborn king. How can we restrain our voices from singing glory to this king of ours? How can we even contain our voices when we consider what our Lord has done for us in condescending into the flesh? He says this, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Again, we're called to greet the Prince of Peace. And let me just read Isaiah 9.6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. I am reminded when I when I think of the peace that Christ brings of I'm reminded of his mercy to us sinners. But I'm reminded of this phrase hell is to greet him and I think of the scriptures and what they teach us because it would be frightful to approach a king, wouldn't it? Nonetheless, the, a king that created all things. But what I'm reminded of this king is this wonderful truth of him. It tells us in Isaiah 42, in verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That's the king we come to. We come to him nothing but broken. But notice what it says, a bruised reed he will not break. What a wonderful truth. What a wonderful promise. We're told in Hebrews to approach his throne of grace with boldness. That we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Let me ask you, have you been in need? Has life bruised you? 
I think it's bruised all of us, but the truth is, is our king will not break us. But actually, he promises to give us life and life more abundantly. He goes on to say, Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And now here Wesley is simply repeating in Malachi what it says of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you notice in the lyrics, someone recently asked me, they said, isn't that a a misspelling for son? Son is spelled S-U-N, not S-O-N. Because we normally think of the son, S-O-N, But the lyric that Wesley uses is S-U-N. Why does he do that? Well, he's simply quoting Malachi, where it says this, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise, here it is, with healing in its wings. When we sing that line, all we're doing is simply singing Malachi 4.2. And you might wonder, why does Malachi use the word son when we would, and it's applied to the son, S-O-N. Well, the meaning is found in several places in Scripture, but let me just, let me just give you a couple, few places to think about this. 2 Samuel, in chapter 23, in verses 3 through 4, the last words of David And he says this, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Listen, here it is. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. When it speaks of the son of righteousness, one that rules justly, one that rules righteously, it's it's like the sun shining forth upon a people. That's our king. That's our king. If we continue to examine the scriptures where God is compared to a son, we find a rich theology of what we have in our king, the Lord Jesus But one more, Zechariah's prophecy of John the Baptist probably gives us the best glimpse of this in Luke chapter 1, in verse 76 through 79. We read this, and this is of John, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He certainly is the son of righteousness. We're called to greet this one. It says, mild, Wesley says, he lays his glory by. And these are incomprehensible words. Probably picking up on Philippians 2, 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. We have to know this. We have to know this solidly. Jesus never ceased to be God. 
He never ceased to be omniscient God, omnipotent God, omnipresent to God. He was fully God. The mystery of this veil is the taking on the form of a servant. And that is the mystery of the incarnation. That he is truly God, truly man. And we have three reasons according to our song of why he did this. The first is this. He was born that we no more may die. And I don't know what verse Wesley was thinking of, but what comes to mind is where Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus asks of this wonderful truth, do you believe this? When Jesus announces that, we're given a second reason, is born to raise us from the earth. And there's, there's no doubt in my mind that Wesley was thinking of 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 51, where Paul writes this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. He was born to raise us from the earth. And then the third reason we're given is he was born to give us second birth. The, the truth that Jesus proclaims very simply, you must be born again. This is the regeneration, the work of God alone, that Christ brings us new birth. In light of that, how could we not then listen to the angelic host and respond by saying, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. This Christmas, let us be reminded of the eternal weight of glory ascribed to our King Jesus. And may we show it in our devotion and love for our King but let me ask you, because this is convicting, this was written one year after conversion. Do we know the scriptures to this level where we could not write poetry, but we could, we could recite these truths, that we could give a reason for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let this song not only encourage us but, but let it also serve as an exhortation for us to live and breathe our Bibles. Because we see that Wesley encompassed the totality of all of Scripture and showed us how it was pointing to Christ. And may our lives always be pointing to our great King. Our Heavenly Father, 
your grace is incomprehensible to us. That you would send your son to a manger in Bethlehem. That he would identify with humanity in every way but sin. Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for these reasons that were written by Wesley for why Christ came. That we no more may die. And that we will be raised. And that we have new birth in this Savior. May these truths comfort us. May they encourage us. And may we cling to them by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.